Please open your Bibles to the end of, of Hebrews. We're going to wrap up our, our series in Hebrews called Jesus is Greater Today. Uh, while you're turning to the end of Hebrews, uh, let me just mention we just wrapped up a vision meeting. Um, we do these quarterly roughly, and uh, thanks to everybody who came just to kind of hear what's, what's on tap this spring and summer. Uh, some of the things we're, we're thinking about with related to officer nominations and multiplication and VBS and all that. Uh, one thing I do want to just highlight is that this, uh, a week from today, we're starting a new adult discipleship series. Um, we do, every now and then, we'll, we'll, we'll take a break from sort of our regular stuff and do what we call our cultural conversation. We try to say, hey, what are, what, what are folks talking about and how can we think with a gospel grid about, you know, any number of topics that may, might be a little bit kind of touchy or hard to kind of wrestle with. So, uh, we want to do one on sort of advances in di digital technology. Uh, we're going to call it Jesus in the Digital Age. But specifically, Kyle and I are going to team teach this. We're going to talk about artificial intelligence and cryptocurrency. If you think, um, well, if you're interested, please come. We'll, we'll do it at 10 o'clock for next Sunday for, through the end of uh, March, basically. Uh, if you're interested, great. If you think others might be interested, we put together some invitation cards, these contact cards, and you can pick these up in the foyer. And if you've had a conversation with a coworker or a family member or friend or neighbor or whatever about AI or about Bitcoin or whatever, and you want to kind of say, hey, our church is talking about those things, I think it's fun to think about inviting people to Sunday school. <laughs> oh, and by the way, we have worship at 8.30 and 11 too, you know, if you want to stick around. But anyway, um, we hope that that'll be a, a, a fruitful conversation for all of us. All right, so today as we're wrapping up in Hebrews, uh, I kind of need to begin with my, what might be an awkward question, kind of personal. Uh, I hope I'm not offending anybody, but, but I just want to throw this question out there. Um, have, you ever, have you ever committed an exhortation? Right? Have you ever exhorted somebody? Have you ever had an uncontrollable urge to just exhort? Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I think it sounds like extort. Uh, I don't know. That doesn't sound good. And I, it, it is good. I'm just being a goofball. To exhort means to strongly encourage. Um, to, to, like you've got something inside you that you cannot be silent about. Uh, and so you, 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 you want the person who you're speaking with to, to, to know and, and you want to commend a certain course of action, or you want to, you know, dissuade them from going down this path. You know, there's a there's an urgency uh, to what you need to communicate for the good of the person uh, who you're speaking with. Right? That's an exhortation, a strong encouragement. And as we wrap up Hebrews, we hear the author describe the whole <laughs> letter to the Hebrews, all 13 chapters as a word of exhortation. This, is a strong, this whole letter has been a strong encouragement. So let's stand, if you're able, in honor of God's word. Let me read verses 22 through 25, uh, just the end of Hebrews. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. 
Lord, we ask for that grace to be with us. Even now, as we open your word, as we hear it, as we consider this, uh, this exhortation, as we consider what it means to be saints, uh, what, it, what it means to have your grace with us, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> yeah, let's, um, let's talk about this, quote, brief, 13-chapter-long <laughs> word of exhortation and, um, and really how that word of exhortation teaches us the meaning of, of what, how precious that title is, that God would consider us saints. That's not something we achieve, it's something we receive. And, and that's because of the grace of God that, that is with us. And so um, I just want to wrap up our whole series in Hebrews, rejoicing in and, and, and hopefully compelling us to, to, to feel an urgency, a burden to exhort ourselves and others uh, to this great grace. So yeah, verse 22, he's saying, look, I, I appeal to you. Like I'm, I'm, I'm making an appeal. I really want you to hear and to bear with uh, this word of exhortation, this strong encouragement, um, as I've written briefly. Like, so that may sound, the word is, is definitely a church word. You don't hear it on the street, an exhortation. Um, but it's actually pretty common uh, in the New Testament, and, and it is used across the board. All of the principal spokespersons that, that we hear from, you know, in the pages of the New Testament are doing things like exhorting others. Starts with, you know, John the Baptist and how with many other exhortations, uh, he preached good news to the people. And, and so if you've got good news, you, are, you, wanna, you can't help yourself. You want to strongly encourage the people that you're around, hey, hear this, this is great. I want to share this, this good news with you. So that's John the Baptist exhorting others. Uh, Peter does it in Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, we hear how with many other words, Peter bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Do what's good for yourself. Um, seek blessing, right? Seek, seek God's grace. Save yourselves. And, uh, and that was an exhortation from Peter. Uh, Paul exhorts his hearers through all of his letters, uh, and he compares himself to a father with his children. In 1 Thessalonians 2, he says, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. So you think about a parent and their burden for their child's flourishing, right? There's, there's no greater burden than a parent has. And, uh, and, and so Paul is leveraging that that relationship toward his relationship with the Thessalonians saying, I'm exhorting you strongly encouraging you, just like a parent uh, with a child, to, to walk with God, right? To, to be consistent uh, in your discipleship. Uh, he charges Timothy. You know, again, Paul writing to, uh, to the Thessalonians saying how we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. Uh, just, I'm just trying to give you a survey. This is not weird, you know, niche christian -y stuff. This is just across the board. When, when people have an encounter with Jesus, when they understand his grace, we can't help ourselves. We have to strongly encourage the people that we care about 
to lay hold of that same grace, uh, to take advantage of that, and, and we want to exhort them. And, and so you see that from John the Baptist to Peter to Paul to Timothy, Titus, you know, Paul writes to Titus, and he says, declare these things and exhort with all authority. Um, Peter, again, not just from Acts 2, but in his first epistle, says, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Um, he's exhorting his people to stand firm in the true grace of God. There's, there's nothing greater that we can commend to the people around us, to our neighbors and to the nations. The true grace of God. Stand firm in that. Strongly encourage you. Stand firm in that. Right? So this kind of gets us back to Hebrews because earlier in chapter 3, which we covered a long time ago, right? It's not just the people in the New Testament who are exhorting or being called to exhort others to stand firm in the grace of God. Listen to what Hebrews 3 says. Exhort one another every day. And that's, that's us, right? We're supposed to be exhorting. Uh, exhorting one another every day as long as it's called a day that, uh, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, but you know, the contrary you know, thing is, is to be softened in the grace of, of God and let your heart you know, relish that, soak in that. So we're supposed to do the exhorting too. Not just John the Baptist, not just Peter, not just Paul, not just Timothy, not just Titus, but you and me are being called to exhort one another, to lay hold of, of this grace, um, to have something you know, worthy of exhortation. And that's really what's compelling the author of Hebrews. We don't know who that author is, by the way, right? Here you've got the final greetings and he's saying, hey, you know, I hope to come to you too. If Timothy gets out of jail, that'd be great. We'll come together. But we don't know who this person is. We, we just know it has all of the fingerprints and watermarks of the Holy Spirit um, in this letter. So it's considered apostolic, but we just don't know who the actual apostle is. Nonetheless, this person felt <laughs> like we were playing around at the beginning, this uncontrollable urge to exhort, right? Um, they, they cannot help themselves. From beginning to end, the entire book of Hebrews is, a, is an exhortation. And it began with these words, this exhortation, right? Long ago, many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. I think I love how, you know, in chapter 13, he's saying, you know, I, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my, my word, of exhortation, he's using that word, word specifically, I think it's as a bookend. He's at the bookend here at the end of Hebrews, and, and he's kind of echoing back to chapter one, where God speaks a word, right? The, the word of God is, is incarnate through Jesus. And God spoke that word to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, that word of encouragement, that word of exhortation is Jesus himself, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. And, and, and here's where the exhortation kind of gets going, like this uncontrollable good word that he cannot keep inside himself. It's got to come out like Jesus. He's the radiance of the glory of God 
an exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And so he's getting out of the gate, you know, the greatness of Jesus, which is why we've called this series, you know, Jesus is greater. He's greater than the angels. He's made all things. You know, he's the exact representation of who God is. And, and so why, why would we focus on anyone or anything else if we have the, the exact representation of who God is before us? We want to look at how Jesus is greater than Abraham, than Moses, than Melchizedek, than, than, than the prophets, than the, than the priests, than the sacrifices, and, and on and on Hebrews goes. And you get to chapter 12, And it says, you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. He is the word of exhortation. He's God's word of exhortation. God is wanting to eagerly encourage us, take hold of Jesus. Don't look anywhere else. Don't turn aside. Don't, don't, don't think you have to move on from him. Don't think you've got to add to him. Don't get distracted from him. And, and that's the whole argument of Hebrews. God has spoken to us through Jesus. There's no greater word that we can hear. So, so hear God's word of exhortation, right? Like, so it's pretty evident. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews can't not <laughs> commend Jesus to us. Like, that's how it works. If you're excited about something, you, you can't help yourself. You, you, you have to share whatever it is you're excited about. And, and the, the corollary truth is, is also accurate. Like, John Piper um, wrote a book about missions, Let the Nations Be Glad, and he says in that book, you can't commend what you do not cherish. If, if you don't love something, you're not going to commend it to others. If you do love something, you're, you're, you won't be able to shut up about it. But, but if, you don't, if you're not enthralled by the grace of God, you're not going to commend it to others. It's going to, you know, the gospel is just going to be like, like okra to you. Just a bag of slimy okra. I mean, I can pretend like I'm going to commend this to you. Hey, it's full of vitamin C. It's good for you. Does anybody want this? How about this? Gewelta fish. Would any... Don't even start. Would anybody like a jar of fish in gelatin? I, I understand there's protein in there. I'm sure that that's good for you. But I can't, I can't honestly commend a jar of fish to you or a bag of slimy okra. As, as healthy as I think it might be. There's nothing in me that wants to commend that or to ex exhort you to, to lay hold of okra or gavelta fish. That's just not how it works. If you're excited about something, though, you can't be quiet about it. And, and, and that is, like, so do we find Jesus compelling enough, enthralling enough, beautiful enough that, that we would, can't, can't help ourselves but to exhort others to lay hold of him as well, right? Or 
sadly, is the gospel kind of just like okra or gefilte fish to us. I, I, I hope that's not the case after going through Hebrews, right? Like, I hope what we feel is what C.S. Lewis described. Um, he was saying when he, became, when he started hearing and, and asking questions about the nature of the gospel, uh, he described like this stumbling block where uh, it was hard for him to read the Psalms, especially, and kind of hear all this language about, hey, you should praise God and praise God, and, and God wants us to praise him. And he's going, why does a divine being care what we think about him? And it just, it was weird to him. And then he kind of reflects on his experience, and he writes about it in an essay called A Word About Praising. He says, I had not noticed just as people spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Exhorting others. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent, right? The psalmist, in telling everyone to praise God, is doing what all people do when we speak of what we care about. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards what is supremely valuable, what we delight to do, and what indeed we can't help doing about everything else we value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. We can't help ourselves. We, we will praise, we will exhort to others, you know, hey, you should praise this too, whatever we think is wonderful. Like, you gotta go check out this new restaurant. The food's amazing. You gotta go see this new movie. Oh, it's so awesome. You gotta, you know, hear this new artist. Uh, her songs are beautiful. You gotta check out this new Lego set. It's really awesome, you know. Are we at that place with the gospel? Do we feel the same way about Jesus? If you're wrestling with that, like, why should we exhort him, others to, to praise Jesus, to value him, to lay hold of him? What is praiseworthy about Jesus? What, what's, what's commendable, right? If, if, if we can't commend what we do not cherish, and if we can't help commend what we do cherish, then, then what is commendable about Jesus? And there's one word here in Hebrews 13 that I think is certainly commendable. It's the word saints. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. The word saint is what is beautiful and commendable about Jesus. Jesus makes us saints. Let me just kind of address this from two angles, like who are the saints and what is a saint? And that's how we'll see what's so commendable, what's worth exhorting others to lay hold of Jesus about. Um, so when we hear the word saint, I don't know what kind of connotation comes to your mind, but it's really not far-fetched to imagine that for many of us, what we think of is somebody who's really kind of hyper-holy, um, and who was a part of church history. 
Like the saints are these sort of select few, really, really ambitious Christians who've done a lot, you know, for the kingdom of God and who died some kind of crazy death perhaps, but who the church has regarded as really, really holy and, and we call them saint so-and-so. And, and the problem with that is that it sort of leads us to believe two things that, that aren't necessarily true, <laughs> which is that every saint has to be really holy and really dead. <laughs> Neither of those things are true, according to the Bible. And what do I mean by that? Well, here in Hebrews, just right, right there um, in whatever that verse is, where it says, greet all your leaders and all the saints... Right there, we get the first clue. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Does that mean that the leaders aren't saints? That's tricky, because maybe we don't want those leaders if they're not saints. And so immediately we're realizing, okay, saints is not a select term. It's, it's more of a comprehensive one. But the leaders are, are certainly saints, right? But the, the saints are you know, just the, the saints in general, which would include... Right? The brothers in verse 22, I uh, appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation and the sisters. Uh, verse 23, uh, our brother Timothy, he's probably a saint, right? And those who come from Italy, they're probably saints. They're all saints. Not, not just this select few of hyper-holy people who lived in the past. Paul, you know, will do the same thing in his letters to, to Ephesus, to Philippi, to Colossae. Um, to, to the saints who are in Ephesus uh, and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, uh, to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Um, he's talking to the whole church. And so what we immediately see is that the saints are not a select category. They're, they're really holy ones at Philippi, Philippi or Ephesus or Colossae, to all the saints, everybody. And they are Paul's contemporaries, they're not dead. They're not in Paul's past tense, even though they're dead in our, you know, they're in our past tense. But Paul's writing to contemporaries. And that means that there are contemporary saints. They're not people who went before us. They're people in front of us. You, in front of me, are saints. So what is a saint? I mean, those are who the saints are, but what is a saint? Well, all right. Verse 24 the writer to the, to, to the Hebrews is telling them, hey, greet your leaders and all the saints, everybody in the church. And all we have to do is kind of do a little survey of what, how has, how has the author of Hebrews been addressing these people who he says at the end, you're saints. What has he said about them earlier in his letter? Now we're, we're answering the question, who are the saints? Or I'm sorry, what is a saint? We know who they are. Now, what are they? Well, according to the earlier in, in Hebrews, like in chapter 2, we hear that the, these saints who are receiving this letter are described as people who have a tendency to drift away from what's true and good. They need to be warned against that. Hebrews has a lot of warnings. So all that, now we're going, huh, saints are, are vulnerable. Saints are not so, so high and holy that they're, that they're sort of immune to drifting away or to temptation. Like they're, they're vulnerable, real human beings. And so we hear that in chapter 2. You get to chapter 3 and we read about, hey, you need to exhort one another every day. We already looked at that. 
Why? Well, because we don't want any of you to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Wait a minute. A saint can be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? That doesn't sound right. Well, that's what a saint is. It's a flawed human being. It's a person with a penchant for the deceitfulness of sin, right? Chapter 4, you get to hearing about the high priests and, and how they are sympathetic to our weaknesses. They know that we are tempted in every respect, right? And, and we, we have this, this high priest, Jesus, who is unlike us in that he never gave in, right? And so we need to go to him to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. That's what saints are. Men and women who need mercy, who, who need help in time of need. They're not self-sufficient. They haven't pulled themselves up by their spiritual bootstraps. They're actually in great need of rescue. You turn to chapter 5 and the saints, the, the, well, we know in chapter 13 they're called saints, but in chapter 5, they are people who are, are ignorant and wayward uh, and beset with weakness. That's, those are the people in Hebrews. And then you get to chapter 12. Hey, look at Jesus. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Does that encourage you to know that saints are susceptible to weariness and faint-heartedness? That they're not just, they don't have Teflon on all the time. They're, they're not impervious to, to bad days and, and, and difficult spots. I hope that encourages me. I hope it encourages you. Saints are human beings, even sinful human beings, weak human beings, wayward human beings, ignorant human beings. And chapter 12 ends let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Receiving this kingdom, not earning it. A saint is not somebody who's finished the race ahead of everybody else and is on the pedestal, you know, with their gold medal saying, ha, I beat everybody else. I, I, or I got over the high bar and everybody else crashed into it. That's not who the saints are. They're not the ones who excel at all the spiritual stuff. So what is a saint? Who are the saints? Call you, I call you saints every single week in the Wednesday email and on the front of the bulletin. Do you know what makes you a saint? I hope you know the answer to that question. According to Hebrews, a saint is somebody who is made holy by the grace of God to us in Jesus. That's what a saint is. A saint is someone who is made holy by the grace of God to us in Jesus. The only way to become a saint is to know, to be convinced, I need the grace of Jesus. And the only way to grow as a saint, the only way to kind of put on your sainthood <laughs> is to hold on to the grace of God in Jesus. Does that make sense? It's not dependent on what I do. It's, it's really dependent on his grace to me. I, I hope it's evident from the, the, the whole you know, book of Hebrews and, and really the whole Bible that the Bible doesn't define a saint according to some kind of impeccable virtue. Right? The saints in Hebrews were people with broken virtue. It wasn't perfect. They're, they're sinful men and women just like us. The saints in Hebrews 
were weak, they were vulnerable, um, and they weren't super holy. The only way to be a saint is through the grace of God that comes to us through, let's put it this way, through Saint Jesus. He's the only truly holy person who's ever lived. He's the only one with impeccable virtue, sinless, a saint in that sense, right? Like the traditional sense. Jesus never blew it. And he went over the high bar and he finished the race ahead of all of us. Like he's got the bragging rights. He gets all the glory of heaven, not because he's, you know, egotistical. It's just true. He's that good. He's that great. And he gives us as a gift his goodness, his beauty, his perfection, his righteousness. We're regarded as holy because we're united by grace through faith to Jesus, the Holy One, Saint Jesus. Back in chapter 10, Hebrews put it this way, by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, those who are being perfected, those who, who are saints and who are being turned into saints simultaneously through the sacrifice of Jesus. Saint Jesus, who lived a perfect life, subjected himself to crucifixion, to a sinner's death in order to be our sin-bearing substitute. And any one of us, anyone on this planet can put our faith in our substitute to take our sins away. And then he would also, as our sins are transferred to him, his goodness, his sainthood is transferred to us. And we become holy because of our union with him because we're trusting in St. Jesus, we're turned into saints, right? So anyway, let me just, I hope that gives us something <laughs> compelling in us as we, as we see the gospel's reality, that that would compel us to praise him, that that would compel us to exhort others to praise him. That gives us something worth lauding. Right? And, and, and when you get to the end of Hebrews, the very last words are, are just an echo of what's praiseworthy about Jesus. Grace be with all of you. His grace is worth exhorting to others. His grace is worth praising and compelling others to join us in that praise. And every single one of Paul's letters, he has something along those lines where he says basically, grace be with all of you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you is in every single one of Paul's letters, and it's also in the book of Hebrews. And so what keeps us, what would keep us from exhorting the grace of Jesus to everybody that we know, starting with ourselves? Do you, do you know who you speak with and converse with more than any other person on this planet? Is yourself. I talk to myself more than I talk to anybody. You talk to yourself more than you talk to anybody. No, you don't have a psychological complex. It's being a human being. We have an internal narrative. We're constantly telling ourselves things that we think are true or not true, or you know, we're constantly interpreting things and facts in front of us and, and kind of getting a grid together. And, and is your grid the gospel? Am I, am I exhorting myself to lay hold of Jesus, like to, to, to know that he is greater than anything I'm encountering with my senses. That the peace of Jesus, I'm exhorting myself 
The peace of Jesus, Essen, is greater than any of my efforts to try to control this situation and get a peace through my tightening the screws. Do I believe that the peace of Jesus is greater than my ability to make the situation, you know, copacetic? Am I exhorting myself, lay hold of the peace of Jesus? Am I exhorting myself that the, pro- the approval of Jesus is, is greater than the acceptance of the people around me? You know, my, my, my spouse, my kids, my friends, you know, for all of us, right? Do we believe that about Jesus? Are we exhorting ourselves, lay hold of the acceptance of Jesus? Lay hold of the comfort of Jesus. His comfort is greater than any comfort that, that sin can tempt me with that the joy of Jesus is greater than any pleasure that the world can offer me, that the, that the power of Jesus is greater than any, any power that you know, political parties can extend to us, that the, the justice of Jesus is greater than any human resolution that can be extended to us, that the riches of Jesus are greater than any mountain of money that the world can offer us. Do we exhort ourselves? Jesus is greater. You know how you do that? How I do that? We have to hear and bear with this word of exhortation. We've got to know this. This is how we know the greatness of Jesus is his word. And, you know, having a regular devotional time when you're reading God's word and hearing those promises. And then, you know, when you're out and about, what are we putting into our heads and our brains? Are we listening to media that's going to affirm the greatness of Jesus? Music, podcasts, whatever, like, or are we t- filling our minds with all this stuff in the world? That's how we can exhort ourselves. And then we can exhort others. You can exhort your family about the greatness of Jesus and the grace that he offers us. He calls us saints. Your spouse is a saint because of Jesus. Your kids are saints because of Jesus. Your friends can be saints because of Jesus. Your coworkers, your teammates, classmates, you know, roommates, whatever. Do we exhort them to lay hold of Jesus, to know his grace, to be called saints? Is that what it looks like for us to receive God's grace and then to extend that grace? The grace of God be with you all not only being recipients of it, but agents of it. Not just receiving it, but commending it. This is hard. Extending grace isn't just words. It certainly consists of words, but it's actions too. It's our whole attitude. It's, it's, it's our thought life about the people around us. Like, What does it mean to be men and women who extend to others the grace that we have first received? This is incredibly difficult. Unless, unless our version of grace is really superficial, but let me, let me kind of blast past that superficial view of grace. Let me let Jesus speak to us about what grace looks like. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. 
And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good. And lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons and daughters of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Be gracious, even as your Father is gracious. Easy, right? (laughs) I don't know a higher standard. We, we, cannot, we cannot live like that unless, unless we remember, unless we realize and live in the reality, oh, wait. That's what he did for us. That's, that's the grace that's come to me. And the more I grow in that grace, the more I lay hold of that grace, the more I soak in that grace, the more that grace defines me, the more I understand my sainthood through the lens of that grace, the more capacity I have not just to receive it, but to extend it. We titled this Hebrews series, Jesus is Greater, right? And we've been talking about all the ways that Jesus is greater the whole way through. And it's fitting, I think, that we end this series rejoicing in the greatness of his grace. As hard as it is for us to extend that kind of grace, he did that for us. Who who else is as gracious as Jesus? Where else are we going to turn to find a greater grace than we find in the gospel through Jesus who loves us and gave himself for us? The fact that, that this is so hard makes it so great. And yet, he's given it to us. And so, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with us all. Amen. Lord, we give you thanks for this grace, um, this grace that has come to us unmerited, undeserved, unconditional. It is simply your nature to overflow in kindness and in love and in generosity to sinners, to to weak men and women, to, to people like us who are susceptible to sin and to hardening and to, to wandering. And we haven't done anything to earn the title saint. But we do pray that as we grasp more and more thoroughly this grace that's come to us, as we lay hold and bear with this word of exhortation, as we grow in this knowledge of the gospel, that we would put on more sainthood, that you would help us to be more holy, more generous, more patient, more kind, more gracious, more forgiving, more tolerant. Lord, make us more like Jesus, we pray. Lord, as we bear in better and improved ways his likeness. May you get more glory as we commend him, as we exhort others to lay hold of this grace that you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.